The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.
morning, everyone, and welcome to worship. My name is Meg McGuire, and I am the ministerial intern here this year at the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco. And I'm Allison Jacks, associate minister here at First UU. And if you're wondering about my arm, I had shoulder replacement surgery about a month ago, and I have two weeks, hopefully, remaining in my sling. But it's wonderful to have you here with us this morning. This Sunday, we are celebrating the completion of our Sunday School program and our thanks to all our children, our youth, our volunteers, our parents, and our lead teachers for making this a very special year. We'll also reflect this morning on the educational ministry of this congregation in the largest sense. What does it mean to be a congregation of teachers and learners? How do we make manifest our commitments to lifelong spiritual formation for all of us? One of those ways, I think, is through worship. And like all ministries of this community, worship is a collaborative endeavor. We are grateful this morning for our worship team, our AV and sound expert, Jonathan Silk, Shuli Ong and Eric Shackelford on our cameras, Joe Chapeau managing our live stream chat, Leland, who will, is our sexton this morning, and Athena Papadakis, who put together our beautiful flowers. We are also grateful to our organist, Reiko O'Delane, and to Mark Sumner, our choir director, who coordinated the musical offerings this morning. He is joined here in the sanctuary for once by our quartet, Maria Rodininski, Brielle Marina Nielsen, Ben Rudiak Gould, and Asher Davison. Maria, Brielle, and Asher have each chosen solos this morning that speak to this larger sense of education and formation. We are grateful to hear a second testimonial on the proposed eighth principle of Unitarian Universalism to journey toward spiritual wholeness by accountably dismantling racism and oppression in ourselves and our institutions, today offered by Sam Hamner. And we wanna take a moment of gratitude also for all of you who, while not here in body, are part of the larger fabric of this community that is so essential to these moments of worship each Sunday. So we begin as we have each week since March of last year by lighting our blue candle through which we make visible in this space your presence until we can gather together again. So let's enter into worship now in singing our opening hymn, number 361, Enter, Rejoice, and Come In. Join me in this invitation to open our ears and our hearts to this song.
join me now in saying the words of our unison chalice lighting. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. If this is your first time watching, thanks for joining us. Again, I'm Allison Jacks, Associate Minister here at First UU. You can follow along in the order of service, which is available in the description of this video, and is emailed to everyone who receives our newsletter, which you can sign up for by signing through to, on the link to our connections form that is found, again, in the order of service and video description. The order of service also lists upcoming events and links to opportunities to connect, including our Zoom coffee hour, which will take place after the service today. Please join us for anything that is of interest to you. And I want to call your attention to a few important upcoming events. Today, following the service, you are invited to join the forum presentation with photojournalist, activist, and author David Bacon speaking on current immigration reform proposals. You'll find information on how to join the Zoom in the order of service. There will be two informational meetings to discuss this year's annual budget. The first will be on Wednesday, May 12th at 6 p.m. and again on Sunday, May 16th, following the service. Both will be on Zoom. Our congregation will take a formal vote on the annual budget on Sunday, May 30th, following the service. And please mark your calendars for Sunday, June 6th for our annual meeting, which will also happen following the service. Announcements for these events will be listed in our weekly e-newsletter, The Flame. And I believe this is all I wanted to call your attention to this morning. We invite you to deepen with us now into next layers of worship, singing together our meditation on breathing. If this is your first time singing it, you'll find the words in our order of service. And you can listen to our song leaders and join in as you feel ready to do so. When I breathe in, I breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I breathe out love. When I breathe in, I breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I breathe out.
before I get to the teacher recognition this morning, I have to say how beautiful and wonderful it is to have the singers back in the sanctuary. I'm sure you're experiencing that too. It's, uh, it feels like we've turned a corner. And I also wanna say thank you to Meg. This is the first time since Meg started her internship that we've had a chance to co-lead worship together. So it feels like my lucky day. So for the teacher recognition, this Sunday marks our final class for the 2021-22 Sunday School classes. This would be the Sunday when all our children, our youth, our lead teachers and volunteers, our parents would be recognized and thanked. But this year is different. Today, many of our classes are gathering in different locations for a safe distance celebration in Golden Gate Park. But while they aren't here in person to receive our gratitude and appreciation, I want to give special acknowledgement to our lead teachers for their hard work, dedication, creativity, and commitment to our children, youth, and families. Since September, our Sunday school classes have met virtually with the lead teachers uh, teaching on the first and second Sundays of each month. While we learned how to do virtual worship here in the sanctuary, our lead teachers were busy inventing their virtual classrooms. Lessons began last spring when we went into lockdown and over the summer we consulted virtual learning experts and seasoned classroom teachers. We developed an adapted curriculum and adopted a can-do attitude. We learned about synchronous and asynchronous learning. We made videos, recorded stories, invented games. We mailed out care packages, hosted Zoom holiday chapels. We held dance parties and cooking classes. We drummed some Sundays and made art on others. We bought tripods and microphones. We created interactive bulletin boards called Padlets that allowed us to share resources with our kids and their parents. We introduced our pets, showed up in our PJs, and did some show and tell from our homes. We had some smashing successes and occasional failures. We experimented and commiserated, but our lead teachers were there for each other, offering support for tech challenges, meals and bicycles, pet care, and so much more. We laughed and we cried. And then we laughed some more. And boy, did we learn. We learned that even in the midst of a pandemic, we could create community, build connections, and, and grow closer even from a distance. It wasn't the year that we had hoped for, but it was truly a remarkable year. I want to thank all of our children and youth who showed up, cameras on or cameras off. I want to thank our parents who supported our program. I want to thank the congregation for the resources and support for us to keep our program. And I want to thank our extraordinary lead teachers, my colleagues, my friends, who have shown up with such love, dedication, creativity, chutzpah, and care. It has been a blessing and an honor to work with each of you. Sarah Beth Kiancini, lead teacher for our Chalice Children Pre-K program. 
Christine Patch Lindsay, lead teacher for our Intangible Gifts class, second, first and second grade. Marigold Birch, lead teacher for the Wonder Club, our third and fourth graders. Hilary Buffum, lead teacher for Crossroads, a story core endeavor for our fifth and sixth graders. Summer Andreasen, lead teacher for the Justice Makers Book Club for our seventh and eighth graders. And Audrey McDougall, lead teacher for YRU, our youth-led program. I invite all of you from home to clap loudly and shout a wonderful thank you to all of our lead teachers, for our children, youth, and parents. We're so grateful for you being a part of this program this year. Thank you. Without a creed or uniformity of belief, it is the promises that we make to one another that hold us together. Some of these promises are expressed in our congregational covenant. So I invite you now to join me in saying aloud this simple and difficult affirmation of how we strive to be together. You can find the words printed in your order of service. Love is the spirit of this church and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in freedom, and to help one another. As you know, our congregation is in the process of learning about the proposed eighth principle of Unitarian Universalism. Through the eighth principle, we affirm and promote journeying toward spiritual wholeness by working to build a diverse, multicultural, beloved community. By our actions that accountably dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and our institutions. Members will vote on its inclusion at our annual meeting on June 6th. But in the meantime, the Eighth Principal Task Force has been working hard to make sure we're informed, not just about the history and purpose of the principle, 
but about what it means to members of this community. In the coming weeks, we'll hear from members from our congregation, a diverse members, diversity of members in our congregation about the eighth principle and what it means to them. Today, Sam Hamner offers the second in our series of eighth principle testimonials. Peace and good morning. My name is Sam Hamner and I am new to both UU and UUSF. My wife, Christina and I began attending UUSF after a long search for the right type of spiritual community for our family. We started visiting back in 2017 and really engaged in Children's Chalice and the Religious Education Program in 2019 with our son, Liam, who's three years old. Our second son, Sterling, is five months old and quickly following on next. Since we're new, I think it's important to share a little bit about the journey that brought us here. Christina and I have been living in San Francisco since 2008. We got married almost nine years ago on a rooftop garden in Oakland. I originally moved to the Bay Area from Jacksonville, Florida on a PhD fellowship to Stanford, which is where Christina and I met. I was raised Presbyterian as a kid in North Florida, and my grandfather was a Presbyterian minister there. I did all the church things growing up. I was in youth group, joined the choir, performed in plays, went to summer camps. I even made it all the way up to the General Assembly as a youth advisory delegate my first year in college. But after that GA, I walked away from the church as they voted that year to continue excluding openly gay lay leaders and ministers. Luckily, in college, I also minored in religious studies where a Jewish mystic professor taught me about ideas of consciousness, meditation, and transcendence. This teacher gave me the tools and map I needed to experience and explore my spirit and its relationship to the universe. We were also seeking community, especially to help teach our children the values we hold in our hearts and provide them a framework to guide their own spiritual journeys. UU provides a unique religious community aligned with our values. It's pluralistic, egalitarian, non-dogmatic, and justice-oriented. And I think most importantly, UUSF feels like a group of people that value each other for our basic humanity. Our family has also experienced tremendous personal loss over the last two years. Most recently, the passing of Christina's mom, Lanette Steed McCauley, two weeks ago. Words cannot express our deep gratitude for the warm, loving support we've received, especially over the last two months. So why do I believe the eighth principle is important to me, UUSF, and the UU Association? I am white. My wife, Christina, is black. And our children are of mixed race. Now more than ever, it is critical to bear witness that in our short time here, we've experienced acts of exclusion at UUSF based on our family's perceived identity. We also see it happening to other BIPOC members. These othering acts have ranged from unintended oversights 
to problematic broad brush assumptions about black people and black culture. I was raised in a Southern white culture. Anti-racism and trauma work has led me on a journey to understand my own biases, blind spots, and pre-programmed patterns of behavior. From that self-work, I've learned that the narrative and messaging of a dominant culture is very strong. Even at just three years old, as parents, we are seeing the need for constant vigilance to correct messages of anti-blackness signaled to Liam and Sterling through the media, community, and my own conditioning. Christina and I want to raise our children as a part of this church. And we need community support so that our children know that having black heritage makes them beautiful, strong, and worthy of being here. I believe the eighth principle can initiate a shift in ourselves so that people of color are no longer othered for not being white when they show up to church. You use RE program has a beautiful vision for nurturing children through a tapestry of development themes focused on ethics, spirit, and faith. We want to lean in and help weave that tapestry with a beloved community that reflects the beautiful multicultural population of the Bay Area. I want the vision of the eighth principle to become a reality for my family. I want this vision to become a reality for you, you, UUSF, our broader community and institutions. And I think most importantly, I need this to become a reality within myself. Thank you, Sam. Brielle will now share with us her favorite lullaby, the one that she sings to her girls. She writes, it's ideal because the melody is beautiful and the lyrics are actually comforting, unlike a lot of lullabies, which can be silly or vaguely dark or ominous. Although I begrudgingly sang the silly ones, she says, I tried to find non-traditional ones because if I have to sing it, I might as well like it. Songbird has always made me feel like all was right with the world, even if only for three minutes or so.
Recognizing there is human suffering all over this world in the course of natural and human catastrophes, we ring our gong today in honor of two such places of suffering and struggle. We ring our gong first as we have since July of 2019 for those lives held and those lives lost in federal custody in our detention camps for the mounting trauma of children separated from their families, for all people held without charges in less than transparent or humane circumstances. In this repeat of some of the most shameful chapters in our nation and our world's history of xenophobia, racism, and greed, we ring the gong seven times for this week of days in which human dignity has been dismissed and our responsibility for that as citizens of this country rings out clear. We ring our gong additionally once for the losses this week of COVID-19. This last week, 3,283 deaths have been reported globally. Since the start of the pandemic, over three million people have died. We hold in our hearts all those losses, all who have lost people and loved dearly, and all who are still vulnerable to the disease. We hold in our hearts those nations where medical care is taxed to the brink of its ability and with devastating consequences. And all who await the fair global distribution of vaccines that, to be fair, will require a significant commitment by the wealthy nations of this world, ourselves among them. We ring our gong eight times this morning. So much to remember, so much to hold. May we keep these we have named and their loved ones in our thoughts and in our prayers. And may we ease the tide of human suffering this coming week, however so we can.
holding the reverberations from our gong and the silent prayer that rises up in each of us, I invite you to enter with me into a time of shared silence. Spirit of love, source of creativity and creation. We give thanks this day for the abundance of community, for the embodied practice of coming together in ways that honor all of our gifts, all of our ages and abilities and beliefs and backgrounds for the embodied practice of community that calls us to keep widening the circle of love and belonging within and beyond ourselves. We give thanks for the teachers manifold among us, especially those who generously take up that mantle explicitly with all of the courage and humility that that requires. We give thanks for the questioners and prophets and learners who invite us to keep seeking and becoming and for the young heart in each of us that insists on growth, however challenging. May we ground in these gifts this morning, return to them for sustenance and for our charge forward. May they inspire in us an ever renewed commitment to the central vocation of this life, that we might cooperate with the spirit of creativity and grace in the world and with the gifts in each one of us in service of abundant life for all. And so it is. Amen. I am excellent.
extraordinarily lucky to have been born into this life as the daughter of my mom. My mom is the strongest person that I know. At the age of 24, she moved to the United States from Kiev, Ukraine, only knowing but a few souls and knowing not a word of English. All in the hopes of her one-year-old daughter, me, growing up in a better place. My mom is also the kindest person that I know. You see it in her eyes and in the way that she sees the world and all of its beauty. Moving to California has been my dream since I've been about 11 or 12. And now that I'm a few weeks into it, the first thing I had to do was bring my mom here. She actually just left last night on a red eye. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> but in those four days that we spent together, California received nothing short of her endless love. She stopped in awe of each flower that she saw, particularly the tall purple ones in Golden Gate Park, which are very tall and she's very not. She ran like a child through the Presidio, asking me if we could go to the stream or up to the lake. And most importantly, she looked into the eyes of every single person I introduced her to with boundless love. My mom has taught me how to look at this world with never ending wonder. It doesn't need to be said, but I love her probably more than she will truly ever comprehend. Mom, when I was a child, you explained the infinite. You raised me to understand just how rare and how beautiful it is that we have been born into this life as mother and as daughter. And I find that your wisdom seeps into everything I do. It makes me want to spread your words your kindness, and your love until the day that I die. Thank you. Thank you for being my teacher. Thank you for being my mom. You taught me the courage of stars before you left. How light carries on endlessly, even after death. With shortness of breath, you explain the infinite. How rare and beautiful. couldn't help but ask you to say it one more time. I tried to write it down, but I could never find a pen. I'd do anything to hear you say it all again, that the universe was made 
just to be seen by my eyes. I couldn't help but ask you to say it all again. I tried to write it down, but I could never find a pen. I give anything to hear you say it one more time. The universe was made just to be seen by my eyes. With shortness of breath, I'll explain. The infinite, how rare and beautiful it truly is that we Our first reading this morning comes from the book Fashion Me a People by Maria Harris. One of the greatest educators I have ever known was Mary Tully, my mentor at Union Seminary in New York. She once gave us a simple exercise connected with clay. We played with the clay first and discovered something of what it could do. For example, it could be stretched out only so long and then it would break. It became hardened in the air. And then she asked us to blindfold ourselves and gave us the following directions. A form exists within the clay you are holding in your hands and you are to discover it. As you work with the clay, let it work with you. Give yourself time, concentrate, and you will encounter a form taking shape. You will be able to feel it, to sense it, to know it. When that happens, you can take off the blindfold and work from there. Throughout the years, I have often done the same exercise with others and realized that Mary Telly was right. The form is there, waiting to be found, created and recreated. The power of the clay image is that it teaches us the nature of forming, informing, formation and form giving in education. The work is ongoing and mutuality with material and open always to further meaning. The molding of clay is a concrete metaphor illuminating the work of education as the fashioning and refashioning of the forms that human life offers. The forms we shape as artists at the same time we allow those forms to shape us. For as human beings, we are always extending our hands into life and into experience in order to give them form. When we were preparing for this service, Allison and I discovered that we had a mutual love for the writing of Maria Harris, whose words you just heard a moment ago. 
and who you'll hear from again later in the service. Both of us, it turned out, have at least one of her books, so clogged with post-it notes and highlights and dog-eared corners that it's hard to find many pages without some insight jumping from the page. Harris was a prolific writer and thinker around religious education. A former member of the Sisters of St. Joseph and an educator in both Catholic parochial schools and non-denominational seminaries. Even though she writes explicitly about religious education in a Christian context, when I first read her work, I was sure she could be a secret Unitarian Universalist. So aligned is she with a vision of education akin to our own, one that moves from a top-down didactic approach to faith formation and towards a more collaborative and exploratory model, one with a more explicit orientation towards justice-making. Though much of her writing was penned decades ago, Harris's ideas maintain a visionary quality for contemporary readers. She offers a framework for thinking about and doing religious education ministry that moves away from religious education confined to a classroom or limited to our young people and towards a vision of religious education in which the entire congregation is involved in educating and empowering one another and the community as a whole, and for the purpose of engaging in ministry in the midst of the world. Of course, she's not proposing that we do away with our fabulous religious education teachers and amazing classes. In fact, I'd say it's actually all the more reason to celebrate and lift up and prioritize that work and those people. But rather that we situate these criti critical elements of education in a larger context of the educational program of the congregation. Or simpler put, that we shift from thinking about the church as having a religious education program to conceptualizing of the church as being an educational program. To use a more familiar term, shift to thinking of the church as a teaching congregation, which this congregation definitely is, and not just in name. Two years ago, when I began thinking about possible internship sites, a mentor gave me a piece of simple and confusing advice. Look for a site, she said, that really sees itself as a teaching congregation. A congregation that considers the formation of ministerial interns as part of its mission, not separate from it. Truth be told, I didn't know exactly what she meant, much less how to look for it, but I held that piece of advice in the back of my head as I surfed through the online clearinghouse of internships. And lo and behold, in the very beginning impressions of this congregation, in an email exchange with Reverend Vanessa and another with 
Amy Kelly, who recounted a few details about the founding of the internship committee a few decades ago. And then in the phrases of the application and the questions posed by the intern committee, I could tell in the way that sometimes you can only recognize something when it is so clearly there before you that this congregation knew itself to be a teaching congregation. I have not felt for a moment that this congregation, my remarkable supervisors, my unparalleled intern committee, or any of you, have wanted to mold me into a your vision of a minister. I have not felt a desire to shape me into the perfect fit for the ministerial team here or into a copy of past interns. Instead, I have come to realize that this congregation has the gift of approaching formation of your ministerial interns, much like Maria Harris describes approaching those pieces of clay. I have felt in you an orientation toward education and towards formation that is fundamentally relational. Not a one-way transit of learnings from you to me or vice versa, but a process of ongoing shaping of one another, drawing each other out into the forms that we could be or become. With you, I have had the enormous gift of beginning to find the form of my authentic ministry, a form that may have been there in part all along, as Harris described of the clay, a form waiting to be found and created and recreated, but also a form that could not have emerged this way in isolation and would not have looked the same had it happened somewhere else. Through observation and practice, through gentle nudges and larger pushes, through affirmation and constructive feedback, and mostly through time and relationship. I have had the great gift of this year of being formed and reformed in mutuality and community with you. To me, this is the embodiment of a teaching congregation. I can assure you that every one of you are teachers. And I'd offer too that every one of you is also a beneficiary of this embodiment of a teaching congregation. In fact, I'd assert that while I have been graced with the chance to engage in such formation with explicit focus and intention and incredible support. Thank you. I would assert that being a teaching congregation in the largest sense means seeing that commitment to formation that you all demonstrate to your interns in spades as the same orientation towards the children and youth of this congregation and frankly, to every single person here. Now, plenty of that formation happens in the classroom, in our religious education classes for children and adults, 
but it happens elsewhere too. In the marking of rites of passage, in the honoring of yearly traditions of beginning and ending, in how we respond as a community to the challenges in our world and the challenges that come from ourselves. The curriculum of our teaching congregation then, as I think Maria Harris would agree, becomes the entire course of the church's life. Not just the classes, but worship and justice making and even administration of this institution. And not just the explicit curriculum of what we say we do in those spaces, but the implicit aspects too. How we do these things, how we care for each other, how we invite each other in to growth, how we organize our physical spaces and our Zoom meetings, how we nurture our young people, how we welcome in newcomers. As we engage in all of these aspects of being a religious community, we are co-creating the curriculum of this congregation. And we are all learning from it, all the time. We are always in formation, being formed by and forming one another. So, taking up this mantle of being a teaching congregation in the largest sense, I think means shifting toward thinking about every single person of every age as among not only the teachers, but also among the learners. And as teachers and learners, we fashion ourselves as with Maria Harris's clay, with patience and openness to the gifts latent in each one of us and in our collective. We enter into a process of ongoing formation, shaping, and being shaped by one another. And in so doing, we shape who we will be and become together and what we will bring forth into our beautiful and hurting world. This is the power of religious education. And this is our promise as a teaching congregation. May we live further into these gifts together. May it be so. This morning's offering will be taken to support the wide ministries, programs, opportunities here at this congregation. Your gifts are greatly received and much appreciated. About our offering music. Some music has the whole story and much more woven, woven right into the lyric. In this last song by Stephen Sondheim, he writes of Jack's discovery and loss of innocence after climbing the beanstalk. You know things now that you never knew before about the world you never thought to explore. And you think of all the things you've seen and you wish that you could have lived in between. And you're back again, only different than before. There are giants in the sky. There are big, tall, terrible giants in the sky. When you wake 
bag up high and you look below at the world you've left and the things you know. Little more than a glance is enough to show you just how small you are. When you wake up high and you're on your own in a world like none that you've ever known. When the sky is lead and the earth is stone, you're free to do whatever pleases you. Exploring things you'd never dare cause you don't care when suddenly there's a big, tall, terrible giant at the door. A big, tall, terrible lady giant sweeping the floor. And she gives you food, and she gives you rest, and she draws you close to her giant breast. And you know things now that you never knew before. Not till the sky. Only just when you made a friend and all, and don't you big, but you don't feel small. Someone bigger than her comes along the halls to swallow you for lunch. And your heart is lead in your stomach stone, you're really scared being all alone. And it's then that you long for the things you've known and the world you've left and the little thing you own. The fun is done, you steal what you can and run. And you scramble down and you look below and the world you know begins to grow. The roof, the house and your mother at the door. The roof, the house, and the world you never thought to explore. And you think of all of the things you've seen, and you wish that you could live in between. And you're back again, only different than before. After the sky. There are giants in the sky. There are big, tall, terrible, awesome, scary, wonderful giants in the sky. In the opening of Maria Harris's book from Teaching and the Religious Imagination, she tells this story. In his poem, Brief Thoughts on a Map, Miroslav Holub describes how a young Hungarian officer sends a detachment of men into the Alps. No sooner have they left than heavy snowfall begins. The landscape is blotted out. The men do not return. Frantic and guilt-ridden, the officer reproaches himself his orders have condemned the men to death. Three days later, however, the men came back. How can that be? How could they possibly find their way? Well, they admit they did give up for a bit. Then one of them reaching into his pocket found a map. And so, they waited out the storm, and then using the map, they found their way back. The officer borrowed his remarkable map back and had a good look at it. To his surprise, he found it was not a map of the Alps, but one of the Pyrenees. Because his troops had imagined the power to return home, 
because they believed they had the capacity to survive. They made the impossible possible. Our church community navigated a vast and unknown mountain pass this past year, filled with ups and downs, unexpected turns, sharp and painful twists, and along the way we witnessed tragedies beyond imagination. There was no map to guide us. Instead, we summoned our collective imagination and charted a way, making adjustments and corrections as we soldiered ahead. We learned new ways and reinvented old ones. We got stuck in the drifts now and then. Amidst the seemingly endless travails, we paused to take in vista points filled with grace, beauty, mystery, wonder, and love. As we begin to plan our way back and our way forward, it's a good time to ask questions and imagine the kind of map we need to move ahead. To grow spiritually, ethically, morally, religiously, to explore the depth of what it means to be human and how we make meaning of our lives requires us to traverse a wide range of terrains and topography. There are many paths, but we share a destination, the beloved community, where we ground ourselves in the radical work of love and justice. One way we move towards beloved community is through our teaching, our learning, and our imagination. What we teach and how we teach, what we learn and how we learn, what we imagine and how we imagine will get us closer to our dreamed destination. What has this last year taught us about being a faith community? What lessons have we learned? How will the experience shape us in the months and years and generations ahead? We have been on a steep learning curve asking ourselves, what does it mean to be a virtual church and remain a vital one? How do we maintain intimacy and connection when we are in forced separation? What seemed unnavigable at the start of the pandemic turned into an opportunity to trust our collective imagination and find a way forward. How we understand ourselves as a teaching and learning community has changed. Who would have imagined a year ago what, that we would have daily meditation class with Elena Perez teaching from her home in Fresno? Weren't we lucky when Amy Hunt offered to lead a yoga class from her studio in the South Bay? The Spirit Saturdays could go virtual and work. Who would have thought the humanist and non-theists and forum folks would welcome people from around the world to their virtual gatherings? Same goes for Sunday, Sunday worship and Sunday school, too. This isn't to say that we all want or should be virtual, all virtual all the time, but our virtual reality has opened doors to people who might not, who might not otherwise have found us. It's always good to travel, to be with fellow travelers and to have them as your company. 
Maria Harris believes that imagination, all the faculties of human beings, our senses, our history, our education, our feelings, our faith and our unfaith, and our image of the world is at the heart of teaching. When we imagine, we make space to shape and reshape the subject matter and invite the learner into something new in the clay, to find something new in the clay. The poet George, George Orr talks about four temperaments, story, structure, music, and imagination, and that all poets enact one in their work. What is true for poets may be true for all of us as well. Each of us has a core temperament that we work from. Orr says that story and structure are limiting impulses, while music and imagination are limitless. Each of us has a sweet spot, maybe a safe spot. What Orr suggests is we, as a way to grow and learn is to walk across the lane and integrate an opposing temperament. Our church community is a vibrant and colorful intersection filled with opportunities to create, grow, and deepen spiritually, to try on different temperaments and imagine new ways of being in beloved community. What's required for the journey is a willingness to walk across the lane and trust your inner map to guide you. As Unitarian Universalists, we are not held to a particular creed or doctrine as the sole subject matter of religious experience. Rather, we covenant to seek a deeper understanding of what it means to be alive, to be of service, to be inclusive and welcoming, to become anti-racist and to work for justice. Our ways of teaching and learning must be bound up in our understanding ourselves as a community where all persons and all beings matter. All persons and all beings are important. All persons and all beings are worthy of dignity and respect. The congregation is the curriculum, says Harris. We are all teachers of the faith, and we are all learning what it means to be a person of faith. Through worship, music, the minister's book club, Wednesday night, Wednesday vigils, volunteering at the food bank, Sunday school, our principles, we explore subjects that speak to the heart and that call us to be our best selves, to work for justice, to learn our history and question our history, to celebrate the wonder of creation and see ourselves in it. Subject matter must be loved and the subjects, each one of us, must see ourselves in the curriculum, giving shape and meaning to our lives. Maps show us how to take risks. Which mountain pass shall we take? How to take care. Check out those rest stops and restaurants. How to take time. Don't forget the scenic route how to take steps. Shall we walk, dance, ride our bikes, 
Maybe there's a ferry that will get us where we want to go. And how to take form, be it song, sermon, soup, silly games, siding with love, soulful prayer, stories, sculpture, and celebration, and so many more. Maps can guide us towards the promise of beloved community. Let me close with the story from the poet and teacher Richard Chess. He writes, in the heart of the matter, poetry and spirituality, I asked the students for their most recent writing assignment to look at the letters of one of the short poems they had written earlier in the semester, using the Chinese system of pictograph writing as inspiration. What images, concrete nouns or verbs are suggested by the shapes of the letters? Translate one of your earlier poems, letter by letter, into these images. Thus, T equals temple, H equals horse, U equals well, S equals river. Now use these words in a few lines of a poem. In the temple, the river of well-being flows from worshiper to worshiper, while outside, a horse tears grass from the pasture. That morning, he says, for the 10,000th time in my career as an educator, I listened and responded, responded and listened, and learned together with the students. When we began the class, I didn't know where the conversation would lead, how and if we would connect to what we had been reading and writing. But somehow, connections surprising and revealing were made. Somehow, with the help of the imagination, we created and discovered a sense of connection to each other and to something greater than the sum of the individuals present in that room. Friends and fellow creators, map makers, imagineers, travelers, teachers, lovers of learning, we carry that map in our hearts, in our hands, and it's leading us into this space, to this time, to this moment. Together, we will chart a way forward through the mountain passes and over the river to worship in rich pastures of the promised land. Oh,
As we chart our way forward as teachers and learners together, may the light of love shine upon us, out from within us, be gracious unto us, and grant us peace. For this is the day we are given. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Go in peace. Amen. of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. 
You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.